Hello and welcome to On the Edge with Eddie Detangling Our Black Identities. I am your host, Eddie G Triumph Pussy Etsy, aka Eddie Etsy. Now, you will notice that was the first time I actually used my first full name because people don't actually know my first full name. And that is because of the inspiration I draw from my guest today. Um, she is absolutely amazing woman, amazing mother, amazing leader. Uh, but before we get started, though, as always, I am delighted for you to join our journey to explore all the different shades of Black identities, have real conversations and discussions. As a reminder, our conversation stories and discussions are not meant to degrade, discourage, or prove a point. Exploring our Black identities is about learning, empowering, giving people a voice to tell their stories, and at times be a voice for those people who don't feel comfortable speaking out or telling their stories. Hashtag, not all black people are the same. Today, though, I am honored to have Kushno Moore Takahashi on the edge with Eddie. So, you guys, here's a quick story of how um, I met Kushno. I was over at, uh, I think it was in Texas, Dallas, and I went to this um, help desk conference and the thing is like way back in 2008 i believe and so i get to this conference and i am looking around and i'm like where are all the black people at <laughs> and i'm sitting there like okay this is going to be crazy like four days because i am going to be lonely i'm going to be miserable um and then guess who I met in the elevator? It's Kushno. And I was like, hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Because I found another Black individual who I can have conversation with. Even if we don't have anything in common, she looks like me. And I am excited to have her. And then we just clicked. And it was such a great rest of three days because she made me feel so um, at home at the conference, and I mean, thank you so much. But before we get, really get started, a little bit about Krishna. Um, so since then, Krishna has become an inclusion strategist with over 10 years experience driving end-to-end -end employee engagement and collaboration strategies. Um, she has been recognized for successes, successfully, I can't even say that word, <laughs> transforming company cultures. Um, you know, and, oh yeah, so talking about technology, she designed and delivered a best-in-class enterprise community at Jive Software. Um, and she is known, I mean, known for leveraging technology platform to create thriving connected workplace programs that make employees want to stay. I mean, so if you guys out there are thinking about leaving your job, you need to give Krishna a call. She needs to come to your company and she is going to transform your company. Um, more recently, though, she works at, um, she's currently um, working with Workday as the communications, oh, actually, she's in charge of communications and inclusion uh, programs there. A mom, a heliquare, a social justice advocate, Krishna Moore. Takahashi, welcome to On the Edge with Eddie. How are you doing? 
Oh my gosh, thank you. I'm so excited to be here and see you after all these years. And um, I want to say feeling is mutual um, around the, the conference. I, I think um, it was it was nice to have your company to navigate through that um, interesting uh, conference experience. So thank you so much for uh, reaching out. And I'm glad we're connected again um, to talk. Yeah. Absolutely. And so I don't, I don't know if you remember, but um, so we met in the elevator um, and it was like, it's like, I, I don't know, you were in the elevator and then I get in the elevator and we were, um, I think in the same hotel and we end up figuring out that we're on the same floor. So we're going out the elevator and I'm standing there like, oh my God, it's another black person. Should I say something? Should I say something? Should I say something? And usually I'm pretty scared to talk to people at conferences. And so I was like, but I said, hi. And I, I have to be honest, your smile was like, oh my God, she has the friendliest smile ever. And I have to say hi. And I'm so glad I did because you have been awesome. And I have, you know, you've inspired me over the years. And I am so lucky to have you. So thank you thank for you. joining us. So thank you. Let's get things started because we have a lot to detangle. Now you're a blogger. Um, like I said, you know, I have been I've been reading your blog and I've been, you know, listening to um, sort of following your story and stuff like that. And I, I want to read from your blog because again, there's so much to unpack. Um, with your experience um, being a Black Japanese, right? Um, so what I'm going to do is I am going to read from your blog. Um, and again, uh, for all the, listen all the listeners, what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, add a link to Kushno's blog. Um, and again, you check her out. Amazing. But this blog is from 2020. Um, it's entitled Amazing Grace, an essay and tribute to my Black father from his mixed daughter. Now, you start off by saying, I was processing what happened to George Floyd, Brianna Taylor, and so many others this week. Yet another headline of Black lifeless body brutalized and taken by the police. I am tired. My therapist has told me over the years, you've learned to you've learned how to max trauma through avoidance and disassociation. In my case, I directly felt the trauma constantly through my black father my entire life and found passiveness as a defense mechanism not to feel his pain. I used to wonder why my father always talked about his blackness and associated trauma experiences with his skin color. As a child, I used to hear him say, if only white men gave me a chance, if only blackness wasn't, wasn't cursed, I am proud. No one could take away my blackness from me, but I am also tired. Since I could remember, since I could remember, wondered why he always came home with anxiety provoking stories like how people treated him poorly, how the police harassed him, how he was unfairly terminated yet from another job. Um, and he go on to talk about, you know, how your father would come home and, you know, tell you about stories about his blackness. Um, but you end up saying, you end up um, part of the blog, you end up saying that because I was born in Japan, between my father, who is from poverty-stricken East Oakland, and my Japanese mother, 
I was sheltered from the Black American experience. We have a lot to unpack. <laughs> so let's start off with, you were born in Japan. What was it like being a Black woman, not knowing what Blackness is in America and growing up in Japan? Wow, so um, growing up in Japan, I knew I was different from the get-go. You know, my mother is from a um, suburb of Tokyo in the Kanagawa prefecture, um, specifically Atsugi City. And um, it was a farming community that became, you know, slowly grew up to be a, a city. So very disconnected from a lot of the stereotypical Tokyo international scene, which was even popping at the time in the 80s, but very removed from all that. And it was very country. I would say, you know, retrospectively, there was a lot of the bigotry, racism, and uh, yeah, just just lack of any non-ethnic Japanese people around me. So I knew I was different. And then my father, on top of that, he was a free spirit. He had long dreadlocks, you know, yeah. imagine. And, and he, he, he's, he's one of these uh, Black men who would consider himself blue-black. I mean, he was so dark. He had the most beautiful skin, yeah. um, but he was so dark. And he had these white hair, which was all dreadlocks, and then a beard, right? That right. just went from his ear to chin, but it was all white. So like anybody, you know, seeing him, for the first time, especially in Japan, are shocked to say like, okay, who is this person? <laughs> a lot of people ask, where are you from? Yeah. Um, he, he will always say like, I'm from the earth. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> he, he was so set in his way. And I thought that, okay, I just want to have friends. You know, I just want to fit in. Yeah. I don't want to stand out. My skin is already brown. People are, you know, kids in the neighborhood and in kindergarten is already teasing me about my hair, about my gum color being different. And um, I just felt really unsettled. And um, I was, um, I was a loner. And I was, you know, I, I, I can say this now, but I was definitely ashamed of my dad's um, openness and even his eccentricity to not even conform. He, yeah. I didn't feel like he was even trying, right. <laughs> so, so, so that was really a struggle for me growing up. That, that must have been really hard, though. I mean, again, you have this free spirit father um, and not a typical Black man in Japan, right? Again, you talk about the dreads, the white hair, and people look at him and they're probably like, oh, my God, like, that's your father. And I'm sure you're probably like, uh, yeah, I'm going to turn away and pretend he's not my father. Um, so growing up must be really hard for you. But you talked about the fact that um, even though there were there was racism and discrimination um, in Japan, it wasn't because you were Black, right? Tell me a little bit about that and growing up, um, you know, through elementary school and junior high and high school. Um, yeah, so um, this was in the early 80s, um, early to mid 80s. Um, my childhood was in Japan. And um, I think at that time, even um, my mother's generation on anybody who was mixed were um, oftentimes um, due to the fact that um, they were product of war. 
between Japan and United States. So um, there were a lot of abandoned um, babies um, who were at the time probably in their 40s, 50s, um, who were mixed, um, Japanese and Black, but they were typically, um, or, or white, right? But they were typically mixed because of the, the GI um, that were um, in Japan from the war. So there was a lot of negative stigma period um, around just being a foreigner. And especially if you were mixed, um, a lot of those children were um, left at orphanages and whatnot. So, you know, generation after that, I think a lot of those stigma was um, um, carried forward where I did not see any um, um, you know, role models, right, in the media, or um, even in the books, or even in the schools, um, just, you know, um, Japanese, ethnically, traditionally Japanese mm -hmm. um, folks um, just don't know how to comprehend or even, you know, a find connections with people like me. And uh, it was very, very alienating. But um, my father and my mother, they were both extremely progressive and they were activists. And my mother sworn that, okay, you know what, we can't keep these kids in the Japanese school because you know we're not, it's very non-nurturing for folks like us. And we were also vegan vegetarian too. And you had to eat school lunch in Japan. And there's just like, there's just no way. Wow. <laughs> wow. So, um, so uh, my, my father suggests that we would, we would homeschool. Um, and, um, and, you know, I think that's when my mother also, um, um, who, um, <clears throat> who were very open-minded and um, very progressive um, women from her time. Um, they met in Denmark actually studying like what women, you know, from a Japanese family go study abroad in Denmark in the nice, 70s. Nice. So <laughs> she was very progressive. So when she realized the need, right, of her children's education, social life in, in Japan, she um, founded um, um, this, um, um, club more or less called um, Bicultural Children. And, um, and this is where she actually invited um, just mixed children from um, the Kanagawa prefecture. Um, and we would meet once a month to play, but also um, share about um, different cultures through games and stories. Um, and, you know, typically there were moms and their kids and um, we would just have a blast. And, you know, there were kids from, they were mixed with Japanese and something else, right? Uh, yep. <laughs> Chinese, Spanish, <laughs> yeah. like all, all of it. And, and, you know, they were at, at least, I, I just going off of my memory, but like you know, at least 50 kids there um, every month. And I just felt so much at home, even though I didn't have a typical social um, um, interactions and friendships that, you know, I did envy um, that, you know, when I was in that group, um, I felt at home and my mother actually wrote a book about her experience of raising us. So um, thank you to, and then, you know, and my dad was the unsung hero behind it all right for, to enable my mother to do what um, she was able to do. I think they collaborated a lot on the back end. Um, so I think, you know, my dad was definitely involved more than he would take credit for, but, um, in that sense, I was blessed. Um, and, and I can say that now that I'm an adult and I've processed all these right. complex emotions. Yeah. Um, but I think without it, I don't think I would, I would be here feeling the way I'm feeling about my identity. Right. Oh, man. Whew, we're just getting started and I'm getting goosebumps already because, I mean, this story is so rich. Um, but 
so you talk about the the complexity. Um, I think one of the things that you had mentioned in your blog was um, your father um, said you could experience um, if you choose to experience what he referred to as Babylon or America, <laughs> as you call the United States, um, you could, but you would you, you you could do it when you were eighteen and you were on your own, right? Um, so at what point did you start looking into sort of the America space? And, you know, when did you decide that, you know, what well, you want to come to the mainland of the United States of America? So um, in, in Japan, um, I, I think there were a lot of challenges around our education. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we were in sixth grade, I mean, I think my parents did their best around homeschooling, but um, it was evident that we needed to um, have formal education to learn the English language. Um, The international schools um, that were closest to us was like two and a half hours away uh, via train. Those are all the schools that the diplomats kids went. (laughs) And it was just no way that we could could, um, um, have that experience. So um, they've made a decision to um, raise us abroad um, and um, it was a family decision between you know, my, my, my father, my mother, um, their family. So like, okay, what would be the best course of next steps? And um, so they made a decision, I think when I was um, six, in sixth grade, um, to, to leave Japan. However, where to go <laughs> was a big question because right? in my father's mind, it was not the United States of America. Like he, he did not want us anywhere close. Um, so I remember um, that first year, um, he was literally trying to figure out, and my mother was sick at the time. So she, she actually remained in Japan while my dad kind of figured out the next step. So we went around the Pacific Rim. I think we were in China for like a month and uh, we were in <laughs> Indonesia. And then I think he, I, and then and then we were in Western Australia and he felt that, you know what, this is the place where we can we can be okay. So right. I remember being in Perth, Australia, looking at the beach. I'm like, oh my gosh, is this gonna be my home? Is this where my mom's gonna join us? Hmm. Um, turns out we rented a place and um, we were there for about nine months to realize that the visa wasn't gonna work out um, for foreigners. And they, oh. and, um, um, at that time, I think the foreign investment was really strict with the Australian government. So um, they had to kind of re- replan their whole thing. And they decided on Hawaii. Um, Hawaii felt safe. It was part of the United States, but in you know my father's mind, it was removed enough and it was culturally diverse enough that um, we would actually thrive and be happy and get educated. Um, so that's, that's, what, that's what happened. We moved to Hawaii um, when I was, yes, six, yeah, almost towards the end of sixth grade. Yeah. I did not know English well, um, but you know, all of us were there, my little sister, my little brother, my mom, my dad, and that's kind of how we started our life um, up until, you know, I was um, um, 19 or something. So, yeah, my other half of the childhood was in Hawaii. And Hawaii is such a melting pot, right? Like, right. and this is interesting yep. because, you know, I've been so getting used to attention, right, um, right, in Japan. Like, you know, everywhere I look, people just stared at me, mentioned something about my physical appearance. Like, always, I've gotten all kinds of comments left and right. And then in Hawaii, all of a sudden, I just blended in. Like, no one was asking me. Like, and I felt a bit unseen, but I'm like, okay, this is kind of nice. Like, am I actually fitting in here? Right. Um, you know, um, 
And of course there's like, you know, dynamics that, oh, you didn't speak good enough English, right. but there was so much diversity that it was in, and there were a lot of um, first generation immigrants. I mean, there's just so many melting pots that, you know, I just felt comfortable. And then um, over time um, I, started to get island fatigue as I thought about what's my life going to be after high school right? <laughs> and um, right. I wanted to I wanted to um, you know expand my horizon so that's how I started to show interest in uh, mainland mainland as we would call it but this is proper <laughs> right but the, the, the other continent of the united states right right of Hawaii. wow <laughs> so you moved so when you moved to the states or when you moved to mainland on the other side of hawaii um how old were you when you moved here i was um i think i was um 20 yeah and i went to virginia hampton virginia for wow. a call center job <laughs> so you moved from hawaii to virginia okay that's yeah. a whole different culture in virginia um uh, what was it like trying to fit in growing up you know of course from japan and you know being hawaii and um now you're in virginia what what was that transition like coming to the states itself um, it was a shock, and and I, I would preface it by saying that uh, my half brother, um, he he he's been living in um, he's much older, and he's been living in um, the Bay Area in California. So I did have a chance to visit him once. Um, he he convinced my father when we were seventeen or something like, look, you know we got to make sure that I'm going to make sure that these kids are going to be okay. So you got to let them come and visit and see their grand grandfather. And right. I'm glad he did that. So I did have a bit of a taste um, to say like, Oh my gosh, I actually have relatives. How strange. <laughs> um, but um, in Virginia, like, you know, it's a completely different uh, mindset. Right. And, you know, at the time, like, I think my, parents encouraged college, but um, I, I was just really lost on what I wanted to do. And I realized that, okay, I wanted to get my foot in the door in tech. And I found some call center job at Gateway Computers, the company yep. that went belly up with the cow pattern. Yep. Yep. <laughs> um, so I'm like, all right, let me try this. And then if it doesn't work, then I'll go to school or something like that. So um, it was an utterly culture shock. Like I, I, like I literally walked off the plane and I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so many black people. And then, oh my gosh, there's so many white people. Right. And nothing in between. Right. And I was culture shocked to and yeah, it was, it was, it was quite an adjustment for sure. And yeah. <laughs> I, I I completely share that experience with you because um, like I said, when I moved here from Ghana, right? So there's a transition. We we you go from Ghana, which is all black, to sort of Amsterdam, right? So when you get to the Amsterdam, you stay in the airport, but the terminal that you get out of the plane, it's a mixture of, you know, some white and mostly all black, right? Because they all right. just got off the plane. And then, you know, you fly from there to Atlanta, right? So you get to Atlanta, you're like, oh my God, there's like more black people. Now talk about cultural shock, right? I get on the flight from Atlanta, um, to Iowa, right? <laughs> now, Iowa is <laughs> all white people, right? And so I get, you get on the flight from, you know, Atlanta and you sit in the plane and there's probably like one or two, you know, black folks on the plane and you get, you land at Iowa and you look around and you are a token black individual. And 
it was so confusing, <laughs> right? When I came back, I was so confused. And I swear there was like this instant loss of identity and depression because, you know, you, you, you first of all, you come from a space that, you know, people are, are look like you and they appreciate you and, you know, they enjoy the culture. You enjoy the same thing. You share the same memories and you get to a space that all of a sudden people are looking at you and you're all alone and you think to yourself, why in God's name did I come here? Yeah. And I've had that conversation with myself every time I go to Ghana and come back and I'm sitting on the plane. I swear there's like it's a span of six hours that I can write like all the songs about how miserable I am in the plane. And there's like nobody that looks like me or there's like, oh, man, it, it's crazy. So anyway, this is not about me. This is about you. Um Let's talk a little bit about you moved to the Bay Area when you're about 27 to pursue a career in tech. Um, and then at that point in time, again, you moved from Virginia, I think. Yeah. And and you get there and you're like the only black person in most of the organizations. Right. Like I was just saying, you know you felt lost or even more disconnected with your identities. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about that transition in the Bay Area. Yeah, um, right before the Bay Area, I went to um, a university called Whitworth University in Spokane, Washington, um, and I did computer science there. So I feel like I got the most potent version of, <laughs> oh my gosh, <laughs> what am I doing here? Why am right. I studying computer science kind of a thing? But um, um, I've asked my, um, after I graduated, I took a job um, where a company had a local um, remote office in, in Spokane and I've asked them to move me to the headquarters because I'm like, I'm going senile. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, and uh, so, so I came to the Bay Area and um, it was a bit comforting because it's a, it's a much larger, you know, metropolitan city for an, and, and, you know, my job was um, in the heart of Silicon Valley, um, over at Agilent, um, where much of the professionals there um, were very mixed, uh, but very, um, a lot of folks from like India, um, China, um, and, and abroad were really um, um, doing a lot of work in enterprise IT. So um, I was then um, embraced by that, um, that culture and crowd. And because the company, um, had I think much older population. I think I was one of the younger um, staff there. Um, mm-hmm. yep. So I, 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 although I felt different, like there was no black people, nowhere to be found, like not even at the Santa Clara office or anybody I you know exchanged video calls with from around the globe. Um, but I do feel like I was nurtured by these group group of professionals. Like they really took care of me um, and made sure that my transition was successful. And, um, and because, you know, a lot of folks, they were, they were from all over the world. So it was just like, it was, I I felt at home. I felt kind of the the parties that, you know, my parents used to have in Japan where they would invite, you know, anybody who wasn't Japanese so that we can have community. And I I did have that sense of protection and comfort um, when I, 
first started um, in the Bay Area. Um, so, so in that sense, that you know, experience might be very different than some of the folks you know who are coming in. Like, oh my gosh, I'm in tech. Um, I'm only <laughs> black person, right? Yes. Um, but yeah, and I'm definitely you know th- those friendships that um, um, I cultivated then um, was um, super nurturing. Um, they're one of my best friends today, mentors um, who um, helped me along all through all through the years and you know, an opportunity for me to learn other cultures too. And I just had a blast being with them. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so like you said, computer science, um, you know, for me, I did computer science and I think I was one of three black people out of 150, mm-hmm. right? And it was interesting for me because when I went to computer science, I figured, you know what? Hey, it's computer science. Woohoo, right? Um, I'll make some friends, you know, build some network. But again, being a black person in the computer science field or at school, especially for me in Iowa, it was very lonesome, right? It was, it, there were times that, you know, I felt very alone because I'm like, well, I have this programming assignment due and, you know, all of the, the, my white friends are all done with their programming assignment because they huddle together and work on it together. Um, And for me, it was just like, wait, am I, am I really stupid that I can't figure this out? And why is it taking me so long to figure this out? And, you know, so they finished and come to find out, you know, again, talking about building the network thing, they had networks that, you know, one person will work on one problem and then the other person work on another problem. Mm-hmm. And then what they would do is they would just copy all the answers and then they would <laughs> it, right. But here I am trying to like develop all this code by myself. And again, it was because I didn't want to understand the system and I didn't really have that network, you know, at that time in school to sort of you know, help me realize that, oh, I need to like talk to other people about programming. Was it the mm-hmm. same experience for you or was it a bit different? It, it, it was, it was similar. It was very lonely. Um, and um, um, I, you know, I, I, I feel like I, I didn't know uh, what computer science was about really until I actually went to school I feel like you know I was good with computers when I was little and all that so I'm like well it seems like it's going to be a job that you know pays so (laughs) (laughs) and you know um, and so yeah why not and my dad was really skeptical like you know what is that even I'm like you know what I don't even know but it's computers (laughs) I figured I'm going to learn how to make websites and make um, animations and all that stuff and then you know as soon as I got started I'm like oh my gosh this is not what I expected but I need to finish it <laughs> so it's a lot there, of math in computer science it, people it's, know lots of, it's, it's a lot of mathematics <laughs> yeah. but um my professors were nurturing I think they were really um supportive and understanding and there were many times where I wanted to quit because I felt so alone um and I felt so disconnected you know I didn't have close friends within computer science department all my friends were like in liberal arts and <laughs> right, right. <Yep. laughs> and marketing that kind of stuff so um i really felt alone but um i i have to um credit my professors for really believing me and helping me through that process yeah so you had mentioned part of the you know you were sort of again feeling alone right but um at some point in time you were very angry with um your father and the black and japanese communities for not fully accepting you in the space um because one you weren't black enough or you weren't japanese enough in their ears right 
um you know and then you know that anger that you had toward your own uh, your own community um sort of deprived you from connecting with some of these individuals right yes. tell me a little bit about that <laughs> um you know, I always knew that I was different. Um, and, um, you know, there were very, even in Japan, right? Like there's very few Japanese people who's gonna understand me. And, you know, even if I meet another Japanese person who's friendly and I'm like, okay, you know, we could be friends or whatnot. They would introduce me to their friends. as like, oh my gosh, meet my friend Koshino. She speaks perfect right. Japanese. Like, yeah. <laughs> okay, so yeah, you don't get me. Yeah. Um, and, and then similar on the, uh, the black American, um, um, community too. I just felt so misplaced. Like my hair wasn't right. I have a, a, a weird accent. I have lots of white friends. Um, um, you know, I didn't, I eat Japanese food. Um, yeah. and I don't know a lot of the, the, the black American arts and cultural stuff. It, it was just so many things. And, um, um, I had, and, and I, and I felt like I tried really hard to fit in in both cultures throughout my life um, and just been met with disappointment each time. Yeah. So I felt like, you know what, I'm just a, a lone being and I just have to live with it, you know, and and yeah, and that gave me a lot of bitterness um, during during that time after college where I just felt like, all right, well, I don't know where I belong, but I'm, I think I'm doing the right things. So I'm just going to keep doing. But um yeah, yeah, it was it was a big identity crisis moment for sure. <laughs> you know, like I was telling you earlier, one of the reasons why I started a podcast was because there are times even now that I feel lost in my identity, right? Um, trying to understand all my intersectionalities. Um, there's things about me, even right now in my 40s that I'm like, why do I do that? Or why did that really happen? You know, and, you know, like when you were talking, it, it's truly, you know, it helps me sort of understand some of the actions or decisions that I've taken because I'm like, I, I, I can't really hang out with my African people because they say I'm African, right? Or they call me American. Um, and I can't really hang out with my sort of Black Americans, because they refer to me as African, and it can be really, really lonely. Um, and people don't, again, I, I think there are people out there like you and I who understand sort of how it is to have a lot of friends or have a be in the mix of a lot of people, um, have a great network, and still feel alone, right? Um, mm -hmm. There are times that even now, you know, I still feel that, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not because, you know, I'm not capable of making friends. It's just because there are a lot of times that you, you just want to talk about things that somebody can relate to, right? So maybe, you know, for you, it, it, it's maybe some specific um, Japanese cuisine or food or, you know, this memory that you want to share. And there's nobody in that, time right. or space to share that with and exactly. it's very lonely um it does. you know and, and, and a lot of some people especially you know my wife friends that i talk to you know they're like well why don't you just try this i want to just try this and i'm like i can't explain my emotions to you <laughs> right it's so hard true. to explain the emotions that i'm feeling about this specific you know situation to you because you won't understand right because you haven't gone through that experience um and so like you know you're saying yes you know there are times that you're 
you're upset or angry with sort of the black and the Chinese Japanese community because they weren't accepting you. Um, and it, you know, for me, it was the same thing. I mean, even now, sometimes you know, I not it's, for me, it's not even more anger, right? It's really more of um, I don't know. I don't. I don't even know what emotion to call it. <laughs> Confusion, or I. I'm still working on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hopefully, hopefully, I'll, I'll get there. Um, but so I, I want to talk a little bit about the complexity um, relation, the complex relationship that you have with your father, and then how you reconcile that. Um, and so there was a time that you were very angry with your father. Um, and you finally got to you that, you know what, you, you really need to address this anger, right? Um, and I think you're saying that um, a friend recommended The Will to Change uh, by Bell Hooks, I believe. That's correct, um, yes. Tell me, what was it about you reading that book that made you understand who sort of your uh, free spirit, um, amazing father that you had and you wanted to reconcile that anger with him? Yeah, um, um, you know, my anger was um, a lot of rooting in, rooted in how I, uncomfortable I felt in a lot of the, the situations that I was put in. Um, I think his intention was trying to liberate me or, you know, give me a different perspective uh, where I just kept wanting to, like, I just want to fit in. I just want to belong. And you're doing and saying everything completely to the contrary. And I think it stemmed from that. Um, and then also, um, you know, he, um, you know, my, my father, you know, didn't have a lot of resources. Um, so he couldn't give a lot of stuff that he wanted to give us. Um, and he, he couldn't openly communicate that. So he would just shut down and he just, you know, like why, why can't he show up to my graduation or why can't he talk about his past or why, um, you know, he's not here for this. Why, why couldn't he give me that? Like, you know, my other friends, parents could, I mean, just stuff like that and just compounded and compounded. And so I felt like, um, you know, everything that I've done, including picking my degree was just to tell him that, hey, you know what, like you keep talking about blackness and right. you're, you keep talking about your skin and how you're disadvantaged and how you're denied opportunity. Therefore, you couldn't give us what we, what we deserve, but look at me, like mm. I'm doing this and I'm black. Right. I feel alone, but I'm not failing like you failed. And that that was the, the emotion that I had. And what Bill Hooks realized, um, and, and, my, and my father was um, ill, he was gravely ill um, and he was dying. Um, and I, I knew that, you know, I needed to go see him. Right. But I also knew that um, I didn't wanna harvest this emotion to go see him. I wanted to address it right. and I didn't know how. Um, and so that's when my friend recommended um, Bill Hooks. And it was so eye-opening because, um, you know, Bill Hooks, Hooks is a feminist, uh, but um, the way she starts this book is how patriarchy um, is different mm. than um, masculinity. Yeah. Like there, there, there's difference there. And what's toxic about the, the patriarchy system as we know it now is um, created by the white establishment. Therefore, um, it, it supports and celebrates the, the white male, um, you know, as, as we know it, like all, all, all the, 
the the advantages that they have, but then it um, constricts the 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 people of color, which we know, but particularly men of color, right. because um, it it um, you know tells us that hey, you have to be the macho man, right? So you can't talk about emotions. Yep, you can't right. you, you you can't be weak, you know, and and you know you have you to be strong. Cry. You can't cry. You yep. have to provide for your family, yep. right? But the system is disadvantaged. Right. So, so then you have these, you know, men of color stuck in this predicament where, you know, they have these like unreasonable expectations that are being placed by their families, by their community, on on how to be a man. Yet the system is designed where <laughs> they are never going to benefit from it. Right. So then, then they get stuck in this. Um, the hook says that they get stuck in this, you know, kind of self-perpetuating um, downward spiral of addictions and abuse and all these like negative um, things that shows up and 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 manifests in different ways. And the the minute I read that, I I realized that oh my gosh, this is my father exactly. Like you know, he wanted to he wanted to do all this stuff. He loves us. Right. He wanted to give us all these things, yet he could not, and he couldn't tell us that he needed help or that he needed comfort or that he needed support because he left his community. You mm-hmm. know, he, he, he left his community. He was alone in Japan. Right. Right. Yep. And, and, and when I felt that I'm like, Oh my gosh, it was not his fault. He tried his best with right. the cards that was dealt and like all that anger, just like whew, left. And, um, and I'm like, all right, gosh, I can forgive and I can connect with my father. And two days later, I was on a plane and that was my last time seeing, seeing him wow. before he passed. Yeah. Wow. 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 That's wow. <laughs> um, that's, that's truly amazing. Um, tell me a little bit about that freedom though. I mean, when you finally realize um, that, it, this is the system, right? So again, let, let me read a little bit from you know your blog because this, you talked about the system and how the system is set up in a way that it is set up to sort of treat um, people like your father as subhuman, right? Um, and you, you wrote about um, you know going back to um, uh, George Floyd's death, and you wrote. As I saw the officer's emotionless face while, need, while his knee drilling into Mr. Floyd's neck, it hit me like a brick. I am part of an oppressive system within America, which is working as intended. The system is not broken. It was designed this way. I already knew, I already, I already knew this intellectually, but at that moment, I felt it in my core. And in that moment, I realized that no matter how hard I tried to improve my own life by working hard, getting educated, climbing the corporate ladder, or how inclusive and passionate my white colleagues are, the social rules established for this system as it stands today will never see me or anyone who looks like me as a whole person. That's, that's deep, right? And, and you are absolutely right. Because, you know, even me being a a black leader in the spaces that I am right now, 
there is always forces or individuals who will go out of their way to make me recognize that, hey, you are black and you are not up to my level, yes. right? <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about sort of, so now you, you, you have this free, you know, you have this freedom that you finally realize, oh my God, the system is set up and that's how my father was and that's how my father is. And now I understand my father, I forgive him. How, how does that change things for you? Or did anything change for you when you forgave your father? It did. Um, I, I think it changed everything um, for me. Um, it, you know, I forgave my father at the time of his death. That was, I feel like the first revelation for me. But when George Floyd happened, like that was system working right in my face, right? Like, you, you know, um, we see these um, police brutality over and over and over again, but that was just blatantly obvious. Um, like it was in front of everybody's faces through the media. And um, it, took my, it took a while for me to watch that footage even after the news broke out because mm -hmm. I knew how traumatizing it was going to be. And when I was ready, I saw, and it just confirmed that this is what my father right. wanted to leave. You know, when and it, it like all his all his words came back into my head, like Babylon, the America with the triple K, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the police um, un, unable to being uh, un, unable to trust police and the institution. Um, all that just came back to me at that very moment. And I'm like, oh, like he he left. He left the the United States and continue to you know, be this like super eccentric, rebellious person in my mind to break free of this, right? Like he right. could have been George Floyd. I mean, any black man could have. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to make sure that his daughters or his children did not have or was not exposed to that experience. And ironically, here I am back <laughs> and not too far from Oakland where he right. all started. You know, I'm like, okay, this is not co coincidence that I am back here in his hometown that he have never been back in the last right. 50, 40 plus years. And it's telling me that, okay, he spared you from all this. Mm. You have a brand new perspective about your black narrative and because you are, you know, living in this country, you are trying to survive in this, um, in, in, in this system, but you're not broken like many members of the community are so that you can then, you know, I felt empowered to kind of continue on. Like at, at that moment, I felt like I was not alone. At that moment, yes. I felt like, okay, you know what? I am not alone. Like I am not um, excommunicated from the black community. My dad did not alienate us from the black community. He alienated us from the trauma of it so that yep. the black legacy can live on. And mm. that was so empowering. Oh my gosh. I was, I'm like, oh my goodness, I can say that I'm a proud <laughs> black woman <laughs> and no one can argue with me and I can own this. Right. That, that was that. Yeah. It was so profoundly changing. And the, the, the sentiment, you know, like, towards my father changed from forgiveness to gratitude and, mm. and, and, and humility. Like I was just so humbled. I'm like, you knew what you were doing right. and you did it to save us. And thank you. Yeah. 
did you ever forgive yourself for being angry all this time? I did. And then I was a, um, um, I, you know, when everybody, when George Floyd happened, I felt like everybody was um, all out on social media, just trying to voice their opinions about what was happening. It was just, there's so much noise. And um, I'm like, okay, I need to look inward. Like, what do I need to do Mm -hmm. to process all this? Because there's a lot to process. And um, it's part of my forgiveness process. Um, I wanted to know who I am as a black person. Like who is Koshino Moore's black side? You always say that you're a proud Japanese person, but you never been able to say you're a true, you're a proud black person up until this point because you just don't know what your past was. Um, So yeah, I I had um, an amazing conversation with my aunt. I asked her like, you know, and start asking about my relatives. I did my first DNA test. Mm. I went to ancestry.com and did all my, um, you know, like found out like yeah. who, and through the census records, right? Like you can, I can see the names of my ancestors and, and, you know, up until like 1860, like this child, George Moore, um, is it George Moore? Yeah. And, and a uh, William Moore, sorry, William Moore. And, and, and the, every single time I see the census line, you can see like their names being misspelled from right. one record to the other, mm. or, um, you know, their, their occupation, like most of them were illiterate and they were laborers and they were, um, they worked on the tracks and, and I'm like, Koshino, you are an extension of all these people. Right. Like, look, look what they've, you know, overcame and survived given what they were dealt with right Mm -hmm. like this is me now because of the decisions and sacrifices that they made and um yeah that was that was the beginning of forgiveness to learn as much as possible about my ancestors and the minute the dna test came and you know told me that my ancestors came from um, nigeria i was just like oh my gosh so there is a story beyond uh, Huntsville, Alabama, right? Like (laughs) there's culture and tradition beyond Huntsville, Alabama or that, you know, African-American slave narrative that I can actually explore. And and it just opened up a whole new horizon for me. And it's just been such a healing, empowering process for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, one, I am going to invite you to Ghana right now. So... (laughs) I, I want to take you to Ghana. Um, so you have an invitation to go to Ghana. And if you really want to, we'll go by and go visit Nigeria. Um, okay. They're neighbors. Uh, so we can do that. Um, but yeah, so, you know, again, you know, the, you said you found the strength um, and you were talking about this strength that you found and, you know, looking at the ancestries um, um, and looking at everybody that came before you um, and you wrote, that I found strength and comfort in the me backed by thousands of ancestors concept to realize how far I've come and how I feel profound gratitude in everything which fills me to live my most authentic life, feeling connected to all things. Um, that 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 is absolutely amazing. Um, and again, I, I think... Well, side question. Is that why you decided to get a tattoo? <laughs> That's not, um, I, I think the tattoo was, um, um, 
I did not quite have that awareness when I got the okay. tattoo, but I, I think something was calling me that I needed to be my authentic self. Right. And, right. and you know, um, Phoenix rising from the the ashes, I felt like was just so telling, but um, the the Hawaiian culture that embraced me so much right. um, for just seeing me for who I was, not um, what I look like. Um, so that's why I have a um, tattoo of a phoenix with the uh, tribal Hawaiian design. Um, and I'm so um, grateful and filled with gratitude for um, those folks who practice those arts and um, allow me to wear it. Um, yeah. But it's, it's yeah. But I, I think I had started that process of yeah. really asking, like, who am I? <laughs> well, I, the tattoo is amazing. Um, so I... I I followed your process of the tattoo and I think you did it in different steps. And okay. initially I was like, Oh, that's, that's cool. But then the finished product and I was like, wow, that is absolutely amazing. Um, you know, so yeah. kudos to you for doing that. Um, listen, I am having such a wonderful time, a wonderful conversation with Kushnall. Um, you you finally found yourself you you found the freedom um but then like back in 2017 like life hits you again and tragic upon tragic happens um and you know after finding your strength and finding your freedom you know you go through sort of what you say is the death of your marriage, company acquisitions, and then the death of one of your best friends. Um, and, you know, in there, you write in your blog that ultimately I have learned over the last two years, again, this is 2009, two years um, past sort of all the crazy thing happening in your life. Um, ultimately, I have learned over the two years um, is that connections and memories with people we love and care about is what matters at the end. Building bridges with good people, regardless of their intersectionality, and not having regrets because we lived our truth with passion. Um, so after all of this was over, you found um, sort of support in the LGBTQ community, right? Um, tell me a little bit about the transition and why, how the LGBTQ community supported you in sort of when you're trying to figure things out and um, yeah, figure things out, I should say. <laughs> yeah, so, um, you know, because I knew I was different mm -hmm. on so many levels, right? Like my experience, <laughs> you, you know, uh, I, I didn't think I really questioned my sexuality um, yeah. as I was growing up um, either. Um, I, I didn't really put a label um, on myself, but I, I did find myself, you know, being attracted to um, people of all gender spectrum. Yep. Um, it's just, it's just been my, uh, um, how, how I've um, identified, I guess. And, you know, so I know I don't really have a coming out story or I, um, you know, I've, I've dated folks from a different spectrum I brought them home I'm like hey mom dad meet who I'm dating right. they're like oh okay nice to meet you and there was no question about it because I've really never made it an issue right um so, but I, I think what what I would say that um is um uh, the person I was in a relationship with um was a cis white man um 
um, he knew that I was queer. Um, I had a girlfriend that, you know, we had like a really bad breakup um, right. at that time. And, um, you know, he, like we, we kind of rekindled him and I rekindled our friendship. And he's just like, oh, well, you know, we should totally like try this thing out. Like maybe it could be something. I'm like, well, right. I guess why not? <laughs> <laughs> um, so he already knew about who I was or yeah. my, um, my sexual orientation, my identity in that front. But because I was married or was in a serious relationship with him for seven years right. um, and then married for three, had, a, had children with him. Yeah. Um, people around us assumed that, oh, this is a heterosexual couple. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yep. Right. Yep. So, mm -hmm. so, and, and I was living the, the heterosexual privileged life, you right. know, and right. you know, my, my partner was a white man and he pretty much got passed for everything. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so I disagree, but you know, like the, the privilege came with it. And so when I decided, um, and you know, as my marriage was um, declining for other reasons, right? Um, I think communication, just different um, processing of our own self that didn't quite gel as we were trying to raise our kids. And um, I, I think at that time, um, um, I realized that, okay, I just need to be authentic to myself um, yeah. in everything that I do. And at that time is when I experienced my friend's um, gradual decline of her health and her ultimate death through um, leukemia. But it's, it was strange because her death was happening as my divorce was happening mm. and she did not have family. So I was kind of the primarily um, support for her right. um, long distance. She was in Japan and I was here in the States. Um, but um, it like every time, you know, you know, eight o'clock comes and, you know, we're already kind of living on a strange life, my, right. my husband and I. So I would go back to my room and I'll, um, you know, check, check in on her. Hey, how are you doing? And she's having good days, bad days, all that. But while this divorce process is going through, like I'm witnessing someone's death mm. at a very wow. intimate level. Right. Right. And, and because she did not have immediate family here in the States, cause she left she left Japan to go get care, but she, she, you know, she had a house here, like all her life was here and there's nobody to care for. So I became the, um, I, I, um, I volunteered to um, help her with her affairs. Yeah. And so, you know, just downsizing her stuff, selling her house, downsizing her belongings, going through her letters, like, you know, what do you think about this letter, do you want to keep it, toss it, toss it, like just going through it, like all of her belongings and her process of death, right, as she was in denial, as she was in acceptance of, of her fate, like all of those um, really hit me. So divorce was happening, but it just became this super transactional thing yeah. that, all right, you know, that needs to go. So I feel like a lot of the emotions came out of it. And um, because of it, um, you know, when the divorce was finalized, I'm like, okay, so what really mattered, you know, <laughs> it wasn't what she said that mattered. It wasn't the right. house that she had or <laughs> the job that she had, uh, you know, people she wanted to connect to were uh, that first guy that brought her flowers to on the university mm -hmm. campus mm -hmm. and like trying to reconnect with him before she, you know, leave this planet. And just, it, it just really hit me to the core. Um, it was, it was uh, so, intimate and endearing to witness and um, be in that process with her. Um, and uh, that ultimately um, allowed me once the divorce happened, I had to kind of come out to my 
social network that, hey, guys, just in case you didn't know, I'm queer. <laughs> like, right, I yeah. knew it. My ex-husband knew it. But in yep. case y'all didn't, didn't know, know, I'm queer. I'm going to put it out there. <laughs> Love me or hate me, whatever. It's your problem. This is who I am. <laughs> but then I had to rebuild my life. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. from, you know, as a single mom, like, okay, I'm going to be authentic, you know, as a queer person, like I want to be in the community. Um, so yeah, the community was so supportive with um, open arms um, as I was trying to figure things out. Um, lots of healing opportunities and people reaching out and um, showing care. And that's what literally got me through to this point, I think, um, for me to be able to say like, hey, you know, I, I don't have to conform to the status quo to meet everybody else's expectation. Like I'm, I'm here and I am me and I am okay. And, you know, the, the community accepts me and, and cause I mean, the community is filled with all kinds of intersectionalities too. Yep, so absolutely, yeah. same type of conversation just happens with whatever circumstances that people have. And so, yeah, in that sense, I'm super grateful and um, I, I do whatever I can to um, be there for them as yeah. I have been, for, as they have them, as they have been for me. So, from the beginning, I said I was inspired by you. And everybody listening, you see why I am inspired by this amazing woman, um, this amazing mother, friend, sister. I mean, her story itself is not, it, it's really like, it, it, it helps me check myself and try to figure out, I might be my authentic self, right? Because, you know, again, I've had a conversation um, with, you know, some of my friends about code switching and how, you know, there are times that we code switch to sort of make people feel comfortable with who we are, right? Um, you know, and, you know, listening to your story, following your story and talking to you about it, you know, I, I, I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, like I might be my true authentic self or I might pretend to be somebody else because, you you know, society says I need to be this person. Um, and, you know, it's absolutely inspiring um, to hear your story and what you've gone through and, you know, where you are today. Um, like I said, I, I don't want the conversation to end, but... <laughs> <laughs> but um, we're going to have to, you know, be done with part one, right? I mean, like I said, I am definitely going to have you back because I want to talk about what it is like being a Black woman and a queer and sort of the struggles that come with it, right? What The way people see you and then sort of, you know, look at you and be like, oh, you're a mom, you're a queer. And, you know, what's up with that, right? I want to have, you know, a deep conversation with that because I think people need to learn what it is like for an individual to be an individual without putting labels on them, right? Um, and, you know, there are times that I'm guilty of that as well, but, you know, it's a learning process, right? You can't just see someone and label them because of who they are. That is their true authentic self, you know? And, you know, it's, I'm hoping, you know, people would get inspired by your story. I am honestly inspired um but hey listen thank you so much for um being here with me and telling your story um i very much appreciate you again you're an amazing woman you're an amazing mother um your daughter is beautiful um and keep doing all the amazing things that you're doing before i let you go though 
Um, I want to give you one minute to send a message out to the world. What do you want to tell the world in one minute? And I'm going to get you some beats to do that. <laughs> um, I want to share that be you. I think, you know, you know, we only have one lifetime to live on this planet. So make it yours and be authentic. Be authentic. In the words of Kushnaw, this life is beautiful. Every connection is not without a meaning. Time is precious. Nothing can be taken for granted. My guest, Kushnaw Moore Takahashi, you're a beautiful soul. I appreciate you so much. Thank you for joining me on The Edge. And I can't wait to have you back to talk more about what it is like to be a wonderful mother and talk about all your intersectionalities in the LGBTQ community. I appreciate you. You're amazing. Thank you for joining me. It was a pleasure. I can't wait to have you back. Thank, thank you, you for having me. Yes, thank you. Thank you.